All right, all, all you rowdy boys, settle down now. Oh. You guys are just too much. Um, I, w- I was really facilitated by um, Clinton, Winston, and Micah. They've, they've said a lot of the things that I want to talk about uh, with you this afternoon. Made my job a lot easier. Uh, I'll be repeating a lot of the things that they said, maybe in slightly different clothing, but a lot of the same stuff. So let's start out with the word prayer and we'll, we'll have at it. Lord Jesus, we are profoundly grateful that we can come to you. It is a miracle made possible by your death on the cross. Lord, I pray that our time uh, together this afternoon would reflect that gratitude and would reflect all that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you being the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge would share that with us. And so we commit this time to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would superintend everything that happens in this room to your glory. Amen. Amen. Let me um, draw your attention. You don't have to turn there. It's Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, and it goes like this. So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Let me repeat that. So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Let's unpack that just a minute. Teach us. That means that there's something that we don't know that's important, that God wants us to learn. Well, what is that important thing that he wants us to learn that we don't know? He wants you to learn to number your days. Well, what the heck does it mean to number your days? Well, as you think about that, let me suggest that but there's, there's two exit doors off of planet Earth. One of those exit doors is marked death. And the vast majority of us are going to walk through that door. And there's another little door called the rapture. And there's going to be one generation of Christians that go through that door. But whichever door you go through, you're going to spend a lot more time on the other side of that door than on this side. The thesis of the Bible is plan accordingly. And hence, the psalmist says, number your days. Now I suggest, men, that the numbering of days has to do with the fact that all of us in some way or another are procrastinators. So you may be a very task-oriented guy with 
certain things. You may not procrastinate over a lot of things. But it's awfully easy to procrastinate about your walk with Jesus Christ. And the psalmist is saying that's a big mistake. Do not do that. And men, it's axiomatic that every one of us figures out a way to do the things that's imp- that are important to him. Every guy in this room is busy, busy, busy. And part of figuring out how to do the things that are important to you means that you have to say no to a lot of really good things in order to do the best things. And this is one of them. The psalmist is warning us. Wisdom matters to God. Now gentlemen, the acquisition of wisdom is not about IQ. Remember, the smartest guy the world ever produced was Solomon. And he ended up in the dumpster. He marries all these foreign women and ends up worshiping every idol on the planet. The smartest guys I know, scratch that, the dumbest guys I know have high IQs. The acquisition of wisdom is not about IQ. God gave you reason. He gave you a rational mind for one reason and one reason only. And that is to know Him. Period. Full stop. Gentlemen, when we, when we deploy our reason for purposes other than knowing Jesus Christ, you invite sin, error, pride, and presumption. The acquisition of wisdom has everything to do with running the race that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. And gentlemen, that race is not in competition with anybody else. The race you ran, the race you are running, was designed by God specifically for you. You're the only guy on the track. And the object of the game is to finish that race. And most men do not finish it well, if they finish it at all. And so the acquisition of wisdom is here's this race that God gives you specifically for you to prepare you optimally to live eternally with Him. Now, I want to connect that thought of numbering our days that we might present to God a heart of wisdom with another thought. And gentlemen, just I'm, I'm doing this as sort of a preamble to what I want to talk about. What, what I'm trying to do is give you a 30,000 foot view of what I want to talk about in more detail. Okay? So here's the 30,000 foot view. So we're going to wed Psalm 90 verse 12 
with something in the New Testament, and that's 1 John 5.19. And I think Micah referred to that verse in his talk. John says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now why does he tell us that? He tells us that because he wants us to know that we live in enemy territory. Your life is spent in enemy-occupied territory. So put that together with Psalm 90.12. Your acquisition of wisdom to present to God at the end of your life is being done in enemy territory. Why is it in enemy territory? It's in enemy territory... Because we're in a spiritual and religious war. And gentlemen, that has been true since Eden. And it is true today. You might remember from last year, or you probably don't, since I don't think you guys were paying attention, really. But anyway, at least the guys over here. (laughs) We talked about Eden was the beginning of a rebellion. Satan enters the garden, causes our first parents to sin against God. And that's the beginning of a rebellion. That's the beginning of a religious war. You fast forward to the cross, and Jesus Christ dies on that cross assuring victory for all who belong to him. But that victory is not yet complete. We're fighting, we're continuing to fight that war now that he is in heaven. He is our Lord in heaven, will one day be our Lord on earth, but until that happens, we are fighting. And the book of Revelation assures us that we win. Now, men, I want to go back for one second to Eden and remind you that the fall took place because of a lie. You will be like God. That's what the serpent told Eve. You'll be like God. And that was a lie. Now, the reason that's important, men, is because the telling of lies has been the way of Satan from that time forward. Jesus makes that observation. We're not gonna, you can go there if you want right now, but I'm not going to quote it. It's in John 8:44, where Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies, and whenever he speaks, he speaks from his nature, which is that of a liar. Now, gentlemen, we're in, this, we're in his territory now. God has given him great power in this world. And his power to deceive is so great that it requires a miracle to believe the truth. Recall Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift 
of God. It is so difficult to believe the truth. It requires a miracle of God. Now, gentlemen, you in this room who know Jesus Christ have been granted that miracle. You've been given that gift. But what you do with it afterwards, after God gives you that faith to believe, now becomes a stewardship issue. And remember, you are trying to believe in a world whose business it is to try to make you disbelieve. And gentlemen, the telling of lies is increasing in our culture. So, to say it succinctly, the spiritual war is a war between truth and lies. And we, as a body of Christ, collectively, have done a poor job in the warfare. War is being waged against us. War is being waged against the truth of the gospel. And we, the church, have fought very poorly, if at all. Guys, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. The world I grew up in, I was born in 1950. The world I grew up in is gone. I do not recognize that world anymore. And it happened because my parents' generation failed to understand how my generation was going to take their ideas and radicalize them. And when we did that, that was the heterosexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. My generation, in turn, failed to realize how our kids would radicalize our thinking. And that became the homosexual revolution that is taking place, or that, is, that took place. It's over. It's, the battle's over. And what is happening now is the next generation is radicalizing the idea of their parents such that transgenderism, etc., is now the new norm. Now, gentlemen, the Bible anticipated this. Someone grab a microphone, go to Romans chapter 1, and read, someone read verse 24. You got it, Holden? Yeah. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Okay, that's, that's the heterosexual revolution that my generation did. Okay, now read 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their woman exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
Okay, that's the homosexual revolution of my kids' generation. Now read verse 28. and Actually, go to the end of 28, all the way to the end of the chapter. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Gentlemen, a depraved mind. It's the death of reason. Gentlemen, reason in our world is dead as Julius Caesar. See, it's not that we have lost the ability to balance our checkbooks. It's not that we've lost the ability to make great scientific advancements. What we have lost is the ability to use our reason for the purpose for which God gave it, which is to know Him. That's where our generation is. And gentlemen, that has infected all of us. We've all been touched by this. And that's what I want to talk about in the rest of the time. So, take a breath. Questions or comments? Okay. Now, gentlemen, we started out with Psalm 90:12. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Let me suggest that the postmodern culture that we are in, and what I mean, men, by postmodern, is that you live in a time. Let me back up a step. When I was a kid, I was that was at the tail end of the so-called modern world, and that meant the world formed by two great systems of thought. One was Christianity and the other was the Enlightenment. That, those two together formed the modern world. The postmodern world is a negative critique of both of those systems of thought. It, was a, it is a destruction of the ideas of the Enlightenment and we don't need to talk about those right now but it was secondly, and probably more importantly, the destruction of Christianity. And men, I do not mean to say that there are no longer any Christians. Jesus Christ will always have his elect. There will always be overcomers. But the church, as a force in the public square, is a non-factor. Nobody cares what the church thinks about anything except to make fun of it. The church has become a laughing stock and is completely marginalized. That's what post-modernity has done. And because of that, and 
Remember verse 28 of Romans 1, the depraved mind. This is a mind-destroying philosophy. It is a mind-destroying worldview. It is a soul-destroying worldview. Where men lose the ability to think rightly about God. This came about first because of it was an assault on Christian morality. Secondly, it was an assault on the Christian worldview. And what is happening right now is an assault on physical reality. There's been a progression. We are moving in an ugly and evil direction. Christian morality was destroyed in the 60s. The Christian worldview, 70s, 80s, and the depraved mind from the 90s onward until now. And you're witnessing the detachment of an entire culture from reality itself. And it's being done to replace it with a new reality. Questions or comments about that? Now, gentlemen, the question before... Yes, Mo. Can you define... I, uh, I don't think you were talking about losing your salvation, but what a soul-destroying wor- worldview. Can you def- give us a more definition of that? What, what actually happened? First Corinthians chapter 6, in the, in the second half of the chapter, Paul says that sexual immorality is a sin against the body. In fact, he says it is the only sin against the body. And I read that passage and I say to myself, Paul, I, I know you're inspired, but that's, that is, that's just dead wrong. So let me illustrate. If I come into this conference room and I've just gotten high, whether on alcohol or drugs, before I come in here. Can you tell from the effects on my body what I've done? Of course you can. If I I smoke for 50 years, can you tell from the effects of my body? Of course you can. But if before I came here, I was with a prostitute, can you tell from the effects of my body that I did that? So on the face of it, he's wrong. But that's only on the face of it because he is not talking about the earthly body. He is talking about the resurrection body. Okay? Sexual immorality is a sin against the resurrection body. And let me suggest to you that sex is far more about souls than it is about bodies. When you have intercourse, it is a mixing not just of bodies but of souls. And that is soul-destroying. It, it wrecks your soul when you are promiscuous. And the more illicit the sex, the more soul-destroying it is. And you then throw in drugs and alcohol. Bingo, bango, bongo. And again, Morris, how do you... 
Christianity came into a pagan world and it was enthusiastically received. But how do you present Christ to a world that has wholesale rejected him without even considering his claims? You live in a post-Christian, not a pagan era, a post-Christian era. That's a whole different set of problems. Someone else back there? Yes, sir. You know, you'd, you'd mentioned a physical reality, and it popped in my brain all these people wearing all these things on their eyes now, and it talks about everything you put, to, put in through your eyes. You know, and I mean, these people play games all day long, and they get all kinds of stuff pumped into their brain. Through, it's, it's just happening so fast. So I think that's kind of an assault on us, too. It absolutely is. And now I want to talk about that in just a little bit because there's something else, another point I want to make about that. Yes, sir. Uh, Jerry, do you feel like that, um, that post-Christian society that we're living in, do you think that's more of an America thing or is that just a worldwide thing? Rob, what is, what is happening is we are exporting to the world our brand of Christianity. So I've got brothers in Hong Kong. And I was on a call recently with about seven or eight of them. And they're basically, basically in a very, very nice way, they're saying to me, what is wrong with you guys? Are you, are you all nuts in the United States? Why are you doing these things? And... They're upset, not just because we're doing them, but because we've exported it to Hong Kong and everywhere else. And we're polluting the whole world with this evil stuff. Move on? Okay. Gentlemen, I think the question I want to put to you is how much of your worldview, how much of your understanding is informed by the Bible? I want to think about that with you for a moment. None of us are original thinkers. Just, just think about, you come into the world and you're, and you're this big. And you got mush for brains, right? There's not much up there. But you start to learn. And you learn from your parents. You learn from your friends. You learn from teachers. You learn from pastors. You learn from the media. Etc., etc., etc. You read books. You learn from those. What you're doing is you are absorbing the thoughts of other people and their thoughts. And you, and you pick, I like that idea. I don't like that. This one I'll accept, that one I'll accept, nope, not that one. And so you're, you're picking and choosing. It's like you've got this big smorgasbord, and you pick what you like, and you leave on the table what you don't like. But the point is, the smorgasbord, you didn't make it. Somebody else did. And you're picking everybody else's thoughts. That's just an, another way of, a fancy way of saying that, is that knowledge is socially constructed. We build our knowledge based, based on those with whom we associate. Now, gentlemen, that means your society, who am I associating with, is of paramount importance. Because 
one of life's axioms is that you become like those with whom you associate. And gentlemen, we in the body of Christ have learned an awful lot from the unbelievers. Now, where do the unbelievers learn? What is their source? Let me suggest two sources for them. One, and actually both of them are available to all of us. The first one is nature. God creates this world, and we learn from observing the world. In fact, science is based on the observation of nature. That's all science is, is making really, really astute and precise observations about nature. But the second place is the spiritual world and the power of this world is held by Satan. Now he gives his viewpoint in the world of ideas. He influences men to think evil and untrue thoughts. And those men with evil and untrue thoughts teach others evil and untrue thoughts. And we have learned a great deal from the unbelievers. Now, as I said, this began with an assault on Christian morality. That fight is over. We lost. The truth is, we almost didn't put up a fight. When men found out, including Christian men, when men found out that women would have sex with us without commitment, it was the holy grail of men. And we went for it hook, line, and sinker, and we sold our souls for it. So that war's that war's over. You as individuals keep yourselves pure. But as a culture, that's over. But the second thing that has been destroyed is the Christian worldview. Now there's a poll by the Christian pollster George Barna. And he polled only those who said they were they, they're self-proclaimed evangelical Christians, okay? So that's, that's the polling group, self-proclaimed evangelical Christians. And he wanted to find out, do these self-proclaimed evangelical Christians have a Christian worldview, okay? So here's his criteria for a, a Christian worldview, and I'd suggest it's a very low bar. Absolute moral truth exists, God is the all-knowing and all-powerful creator and sustainer. The Bible is his accurate and reliable message to us. We should rely on Christ and cannot earn our way into heaven, and Satan exists. Okay, that's that's the bar. It's it's pretty, it's, it's good, it's all right, but I'd suggest it's a low bar. 81% of evangelical Christianity could not jump that hurdle. They disbelieved one or more things on that list. 
81% of professed evangelicals. We're not talking about any mainline Protestants. We're not talking about anybody else. But people who are supposedly like us. A gentleman, I suggest if he had added things like the need for obedience, participation in the ministry, judgment, that that number would have gone way up. I tell you this to point out that there is this progression that is happening to us. The world does one thing, so the world has a heterosexual revolution. We, the church, follow suit. The church, the, the, the culture has a homosexual revolution, and we, the church, are buying into it because we don't have a Christian worldview. But the show isn't over. It's still advancing. Men, this erasure of biblical morality and worldview is a rebellion against spiritual reality. But the next rebellion that we've entered is against physical reality. Let me give you some examples. The right to kill one's unborn baby for any or no reason is a foundational right. Some men can have babies. There are a multitude of genders, and even children can choose to be whatever they wish without their parents' consent. We don't know what a woman is. Your race defines who you are. Parents have no business in their children's education. The police should be defunded and criminal behavior decriminalized. Climate change is a moral issue. And the metaverse, you talked about virtual reality. The metaverse is an attempt to create a new reality. Gentlemen, don't, you, you may be immune to this. You may say, no, no, I, I don't buy any of that. Remember the lessons from my parents' generation and my generation. Do not underestimate the ability of your children to radicalize your thinking. What seems abhorrent to you may very well become embraced by your kids. Questions or discussion? Yes, sir. Mike. Yeah, so that poll that you just cited, what year was that poll taken? I can't remember. It was, I, I don't remember, 2017 maybe. You can Google it. Charles? <clears throat> Jerry, as you know, I have um, four young kids. <clears throat> 
And I've been thinking a lot about some of the stuff you just mentioned. Um, and I know that I have no control over my kids' salvation, but from a stewardship issue, I feel like, you know, we've exposed them to the word. Um, two of them can't read yet. And I'm just thinking about all the stuff that you're talking about. It's almost impossible to avoid them seeing it or hearing about it, being exposed to it at these young ages. Do you have any thoughts on just that? Charles, the reason I brought up the idea that knowledge is socially constructed is because that is what is happening with our children when they get on the internet. They start to communicate with their peers. And so, for example, a 13-year-old girl feels anxiety, feels stress. She gets on a chat site, and someone suggests to her that that's because she's really a boy. And then someone else on the chat says that, and so on. Seems to me that has a lot to do with this new wave of transgenderism among adolescent girls. Knowledge is socially constructed. Be very, very careful who you listen to. And be very, very careful who your children listen to. Barty. Number one. Uh, Jerry, I... So, like Charles was just talking about, I have a son. It's his first year in public high school. He's been in private school his whole life. The school was amazing. And there's already covert stuff that teachers do. There's separation in the students at the school. There's, there's all kinds of insanity and nonsense. As a Christian man who's leading his family, doing what I can, my, my kids have a great foundation. But every bit of the old Barty quarters is being pulled to do something in very bad directions. And I just, I just feel like what you said, that the war's over. What do you mean, Barty, when you said do something? I mean, take action. Like, I, like I had a plan for a little bit to meet a teacher in a parking lot and have a chat with him because he's a homosexual who redacts stuff out of stories. And then my 14-year-old son looks up the story, see what was redacted, and it's something that should not be presented to my child. My son's very well adjusted. He's smart enough to have that conversation with me. But no one's having the conversation with that teacher in the manner that it should be. And the school district says he has done nothing wrong. I know otherwise. 
and I communicate really well with people at points and times in, in my life. And it's just hard today. It is. Barty, you're not going to win that war. Um, but I, the, the way you talk to your kid, that's your, that's your, um, that's your best play in the situation that you're in. And I just encourage you to stay on top of what they're learning. And I, I don't know what your options are, but if you have options, I would consider exercising them or at least saying to your kids, listen, you are right now as close to hell as I hope you ever get. This place you are in is... It's a den of demons. And I, I'm, I've got two conditions for you. You're going to tell me what they're teaching you. And we're going to talk about it. And we're going to do that every day. Second condition is, if I see any behaviors in you that I don't like, I'm pulling you. If, we don't meet, if you don't meet those two conditions, I pull you. Do you have options? Yeah, Jeff. just a reflection on this war that we're up against we had a um, we had a girl that worked for one of our stores and she was a private school math um, very very knowledgeable in math she taught my child math and she went to a public school because her father could not afford it anymore and her and I used to have multiple conversations about God and after one year in public school she came to me and she goes, I don't believe in God anymore, Jeff. I'm just spiritual. And I said, well, Melissa, sit down with me. Tell me what's going on. And she said, in public school, you cannot talk about God because your ability to offend somebody by referencing God in some manner. So the only thing you can talk about is atheism. And she said, and next... I can't identify a boy or a girl anymore. I have to identify them by a they because, therefore, I can offend the actual person by identifying themselves into a different gender. And she said, and also I'm bisexual now. And I said, why? And she said, because in public school you become a social outcast if you're not willing to go both ways. She said, I was forced upon myself by another girl and I rejected it and therefore I became a social outcast and the only way that my friends would allow me back in is if I was willing to be with both sides. Yeah, there's a lot of heroes out there. General, a lie might be defined as the triumph of narrative over reality. That's what's... That's what's happening. It's all about narrative. Reality has nothing to do with it anymore. 
And men, this is where it gets really dicey because we have to confront the lies with truth. But truth alone is not enough. See, the, the truth is that I deserve hell. That's the truth. But the truth is also that Christ died for us so that we don't go to hell. And gentlemen, as we are, are interacting with those around us who, who espouse these things, we have got to remember this. That person you're looking at, that man in the dress you're looking at, with the false eyelashes and the false boobs, that man is in need of Jesus Christ. And to simply tell him that he is wrong is not enough. Our approach has got to be this blend of truth and love. And gentlemen, that's going to get harder and harder as time goes on. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 12. Because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. I don't know about you guys, but I can feel that. I can feel that in me. And I repudiate it. God help me that that not happen. And then he says also in Luke 18.8 However when the Son of Man returns will he find faith on earth. Gentlemen, none of these words are the story of the church triumphant. I am not a prophet. I do not know where in the timeline of God we are. I know we are in a very evil time. I know we are in a time where people believe things that they have never, ever believed in the history of the world. But I know what I see with respect to those two verses. And those with faith are few and far between. Just remember the Barnapole. To even just entertain a Cliff Notes version of a, of a, of a Christian worldview. Very few. And men, our, our, our track record on love is really not so hot. See, if, 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 if I were to go on trial for being a Christian and the bar is love is there enough evidence to convict me is there enough evidence to convict you and gentlemen we've got to double down on being biblical with one another and learning how to love so Let me suggest, men, that our rebellion against spiritual and physical reality are related. And they're related 
because our minds are a restless faculty. Our minds need something to think about. And interesting thing about reason, about your mind, by itself, it cannot distinguish between reality and appearances. Just think about virtual reality. When it's happening to you, if you're falling in this virtual world, you feel like you're falling. Your mind can't tell. And again, our friend over there at Facebook is trying to build us a metaverse. Gentlemen, if, 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 every, if anybody ever gets virtual sex down, it's game over. The human race is done. And I don't, I don't know where they are on that, but I suspect they're not too far away. We are seeking to erase the image of God from ourselves. That's what the human race is doing now. We're made in his image and we hate him so much that we want to erase it from our very beings. So, how do we regain a biblical worldview? How do we regain a biblical morality? I want to tell you a little parable. It's a Greek Ancient Greek parable. The parable is called The Fox and the Hedgehog. It goes like this. It's from an ancient pre-Socratic thinker by the name of Archilochus. The proverb goes like this. It says, The fox knows many small things. The hedgehog knows one big thing. What does it mean? Well, it's a parable about people. There's a lot of interpretations of it, but I'm going to offer you the one that I I like the best. Hedgehogs, the guys who know one big thing, see life through a single grid. They interpret all of life through this grid. Foxes see life helter-skelter. They go with the flow. They pursue many ends that are often unrelated and even contradictory. They're unfocused. parable suggests that people are one or the other. I suggest you have to be both. The hedgehog, the organizing principle that you have to get right is Jesus Christ. You have to see all of life through the grid of Christ. Everything else is a fox. Everything else is small. Now, The world you live in today has a lot of hedgehogs. Not very many of them that have Christ as their organizing principle. A lot of hedgehogs will see life through the grid of gender. So everything that they see is about gender. Or everything is about race. Or everything is about environmentalism. Or everything is about feminism. And when you misidentify the hedgehog, you get everything else wrong. 
And Barna's study suggests that we in the church are guilty of that. Now, if the organizing principle is the Bible, if the organizing principle is Jesus Christ, then what are the foxes that we need to see through the grid of Christ? And I suggest there's three. The first one is man. Who exactly are we? Who and what are we? The second is nature. And the third is history. So, there's four books. The Bible, man, nature, and history. And I suggest those four books are all telling the same story. They're all telling the story of Jesus Christ. Let me read for you from out of Colossians 1. This is Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 18. It's talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Christ is the hedgehog. Christ is the organizing principle. Understand him, and then you'll begin to understand everything else. Questions or comments about that? You guys are going really easy on me this this afternoon. Okay. So, life is a synthetic whole. Jerry, real quick. Sorry, over here. Oh, yeah. Charles. When, When you say those four books, the books part, you explain that I got Bible but man nature history I beg you, say the last thing man nature history how are those books history is the easiest one to understand right as a book people write history books people also write books about nature nowadays most books about nature are scientific books What is creation telling us? What is history telling us? And the final one is man. What do we learn about man when we observe him through the grid of the Bible versus what we learn about man when we look at him through another grid? And what I'm suggesting to you, Charles, is that our world today has reread, has reinterpreted all of those things. It's reinterpreted the Bible to virtually say it has no there's, no, there's no reason for it. It's a purely historic interest. And so now the interpretation of who man is, the interpretation of nature and the interpretation of history are from a purely secular, man-centered viewpoint. And 
That's what's happening over at Barty's school and over at this person's school, over everybody's school. They're getting this reinterpretation, this non-Christian, this non-biblical reinterpretation of all of those things. So it's not just that there's a frontal assault on Christianity. There's a frontal assault on learning of every kind. Make sense? No? This, this can get pretty depressing. I think a lot of us are feeling depressed right now. And I'm almost 80, and I'm starting to pray while I'm sitting here, Lord, come quickly for me. It's kind of greedy. I've got 13 grandkids, three great-grandsons. I just wrote, pray for each one of them every day. I mean, I'm trying to think, well, I'm still alive. I've got to do something. I can't go do what I would like to do to his kid's teacher. Um, although I just acquired a gun today. <laughs> that was a gift. But, um, yeah, men, we need to pray specifically for, for these kids. Mo, you're with, uh, you, your heart and mind are knit. I agree. And my brother... Again, I don't know what's coming down the pike. I don't like what I see in any direction I turn. It's not hard to envision guys in this room finishing the cruise in jail over hate crimes, right? Hate speech. It's not hard to, to envision that. So... What exactly can we do? Again, Christ tells us how this ends. It is not the church triumphant until he comes. The church gets kicked kicked to the curb. It's read the book of Revelation. It is not pretty. And gentlemen, I I will speak for myself and you decide if it's true of you. I am soft. I'm not ready for the kind of stuff I see in that book. A skinny little guy like me in jail? I don't like the sound of that very much. So what are my options? If, If those things are coming... What are our options? And gentlemen, I suggest to you, the option is to look deep in your soul and ask yourself some hard questions. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, to my everlasting shame, that's not true. I want it to be. But I'd be lying if I said it was. I've got work to do. God, I want that. And it scares me to pray for it. 
because I don't know what it's going to take for that to happen. So I'm scared. But I want that. I don't know what's coming down the pike. But if it is persecution, like what I read in Revelation, I'm not ready. Make me ready. And what, by the way, God, that prayer scares me too. But the only thing worse would be to get there and not be ready. So, we have, we have brought this on ourselves, guys. Again, I'm not saying that if the church had responded better to these early assaults, that it would have changed the outcome. The outcome is written. History is written. It's going to happen. But our stewardship has been exceedingly poor. We have got to become biblical men. We've got to quit dabbling with Jesus and get serious. Because the world hates the likes of us. And men, we better pray that that our enemies figure out that we love them before they find out we're Christians. Because the second they find out we're, we're Christians, they don't want anything to do with us. And so we've got a major on love. And that does not mean being soft on sin. There is a difference between how you treat someone who claims Christ and is doing, well, let's say there's a drunk. This guy's a Christian drunk. This guy's a non-Christian drunk. You don't treat them the same. The non-Christian drunk, you preach Jesus to him, right? And then you talk about getting cleaned up. The Christian drunk, you discipline him. The same is true with, let's take homosexuality or transgenderism. It's the same thing. There's a big difference between whether the person claims Christ or they don't. If they claim Christ, we discipline them. If they don't claim Christ, we love them and teach them the gospel. Right? Gentlemen, the chips are going to fall the way they're going to fall. Again, that's baked into the cake. You can't do anything about that. What you can do is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's all you've got control over. And the influence you have on those around you. I'm on a... Hey, so I I know it's a lot of doom and gloom, but I do want to offer one little bit of encouragement, guys. Let's not forget. Jesus built the church on Peter, and he said, all the powers of hell will not defeat it. I believe that. The church, God will not let the church fail. We're going to get kicked around, but in the end, we're not going anywhere. I agree, my brother, but I just remind you that every one of those letters in Revelation to the seven churches contains an address to overcomers. There will be overcomers, of course. My, my, my comments today have to do with what we can do about what we can do. Building the church is not our business. It's Christ's business. And I would say it's not built on Peter. It's built on his profession 
that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, Dan. Number six. Um, I don't disagree with you at all about the the book is written, but I am curious, Jerry. I don't know enough about history. The, the the cycle of like homosexuality, and I know now we're getting into gender, which may be new. Has there been other like cycles like this where it just seems like society is just spiraling, and then we wake up, and you know, like has this happened? prior and it does get better and maybe we're talking we're having the same talk 500 years from now yeah there's homosexuality has been present forever but nobody has ever said let's institutionalize it and have homosexual couples get married that's a, that's a new thought nobody would ever have thought of that prior to us the whole business of men and women, what we think, how we think about men and women is brand new. So someone asked a question about the weaker vessel uh, earlier. Let me suggest to you that that would not have occurred to any other generation prior to ours. Of course the woman's a weaker vessel. Everybody knows that, including the women. That's unique to us because of things that have happened, things that we've been taught and the way we have masculized our women and feminized our men. That's why that's, that's so blurry for us. And the third thing that is different is nobody has ever been in a post-Christian culture before. And as I suggested, post-Christian and pagan are two different animals. Very different animals. So are we in uncharted water? Yes, we are. Does that mean it's the end? I don't know. I'm just saying it's harder and harder to find the Bible addressing the stuff that we're facing. Nobody, and here's, here's the last one that nobody has ever, ever disputed. Male and female, he created them. That's never been in dispute. Now, it's like, you think there's only two sexes? How stupid can you be? Do you understand the magnitude of that? Again, guys, we, we have become so numb to this stuff. You don't realize how far we are from the rest of the human race that ever existed before us. They would look at us in absolute disbelief. Clayton? I, I wanted to go back to um, when you were talking about Satan's influence earlier <clears throat> and just um, when Peter is confessing the Christ and then, you know, a couple passages later, he rebukes Christ and Christ says, get behind me, Satan. In that moment, could you maybe explain exactly what happened there? Was there some sort of falling away? Was Peter an unbeliever, not yet sanctified, um, and are we susceptible to this, uh, whatever you would call that? Was it a possession? Was it just an influence of Satan in that moment? When Christ literally says, get behind me, Satan, he's calling Peter Satan. I guess, could you maybe go into that? Yeah, I think, I think it's what you just said 
that it is the influence, it is an idea of Satan's, and we are all capable of embracing those. Yes, correct. Charlie? Yeah, um, four. So is this... Is he on? Number four. So is there any likely uh, thing like Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, is this a repeat in, in some ways? Well, they couldn't perform transgender surgery. Yeah, it is, but that was one city. He said, he said that... Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I just... There, to me, it brings back, you know, I watch movies of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah on TV, or just... And uh, it intimated that you know this was a lost world where sexuality was. Uh, Charlie, it's interesting that. Well, just repeat your question real, real quick again. Well, does this, in some ways, go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then what was? Are we headed into that kind of craziness? That kind well, of sinfulness? oh, we we passed that. We're not heading that way. We've passed it. Remember, it was the men of the city. And in the passage that um, was just read out of Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, the first sex addressed are the women. That is the only place in either testament of which I'm aware where that sin of lesbianism is mentioned. It's not in the Old Testament that I can find. It's always men with men. And I'm not sure why that is. But again, in the Old Testament, with respect to sexuality, the commandments are always to the men. It is because men are expected to be the guardians of women. And men, our our women have outstripped us in virtually every way. In the marketplace, they're killing us. In academic degrees, they're killing us. And they don't really need us, is the truth. And they know it. And this, the prominence of the lesbian component of it is not insignificant. Yes, sir. Can, can you grab a microphone, please? It seems like what I'm hearing is the demoralizing of women has led to the uh, uh, 
attraction of women to other women because the men are not taking their place. And I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at the television shows in the 50s and 60s and 70s where um, Maude and the Golden Girls are all demoralizing men, uh, allowing the placement of women with women as a norm. Well, gentlemen, we're talking about truth and lies. The lie is that there is a war on women. The truth is there is a war on men. And it's been going on now for 50 or 60 years. And it has succeeded. Men have been beaten into the ground. Mo? Yeah, Ezekiel 16 puts Sodom and Gomorrah in perspective, and I didn't, for a long time, didn't know this. I hadn't read this passage. I'd just like to read these couple of verses to kind of get at the, the real root of the issue. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So it's kind of interesting to me, he's not talking about sex here. And all that came as a result of their attitude to not help people in need, to be greedy. And this, that led to what happened the sexual sin. Yeah. So that came first. Holden? Number two. You, I think if I heard you right, you said building the church is not our business. Correct. It's Christ's business. Can you clarify that? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Where are you in that equation? So your task is not to build the church, but you have an important task. Go make disciples don't build the church make disciples they're not the same thing can you help unpack Ephesians um, 4.12 for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ yes church the church is an organism it is people serve people Now, if you use the church, if you use the institutional church to serve people, that's perfectly fine. But don't allow the institutional church to use you. Make sense? Yeah, thank you. Jeff? Three. Okay. Is there a question, Jeff? There is. Okay. So if we know the end game, and if pre-trib is wrong, and you had mentioned yourself, can't seeing yourself in that form of persecution, do we have any references in the Bible for preparation for a system that's getting ready to come down on us? 
I think, my brother, we have the witness of the martyrs. There have been those who've preceded us who paid with their life. And we need to emulate them. That's what I meant when I said if, if the kind of persecution that, that Revelation talks about is coming, and even if it isn't that's that severe, if, if, even if it's less, I suggest your best hope of coming out on the other side in a way that is God-pleasing is going to be determined by the quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ and that you do that now. Now is the time to prepare and work on that. Okay, so I agree with that preparation. And what about preparation to prepare ourselves to be a place where maybe this type of persecution can't easily get to us? You just tell me where to go and I'll go. (laughs) Okay. So in Matthew it says, flee to the mountains. No, no, wait a minute. Who flees to the mountains in Matthew 24? I understand it's speaking to the Jews, but the son In what city? Okay. And that's when the son of perdition is recognized. It's when the abomination of desolation takes place, and those Jews in Jerusalem are to flee the city. Right. It's to them. It's not to you. It's not to me. Again, my brother, if if someone is coming after you with a machine gun, there's a pretty good chance he's going to get you in the back because you're running, right? No, I agree with that. Anyway, with those mountains, it's interesting. Islands are mountains in the water. Yeah, don't go too far with that. Jerry, it's 5.30, so can we... uh... One more question? Yep, sure. I'll make it brief. Number seven. Jerry, in my town, San Diego, uh, one of the, the big local churches is, is going to be sponsoring an LGBTQ event. Uh, my neighbor is very upset because he's been on the school board. They're, they're infiltrating the schools. You know, where I go and do my Bible study, uh, the local St. Paul's chapel is hanging a big rainbow flag, and I don't think it's to signify Noah's promise from God. <laughs> My question is, if when you mentioned the martyrs, uh, and I know a lot of these, these gents in here are asking, what do we do? Uh, it seems like outside of the church probably not do anything. But what about inside of the church? You know, what about those that claim to be the church that are spreading this? And I guess the question is, do you go be a martyr? Do you have a Stephen moment like in Acts 7 and call them out? Or do we just hang back, be pacifists, which I've been accused of being lately, especially on the government side, and just focus on E-squared? Brother, my sense is that our objective, our mission, is to speak the truth in love. So you you teach the scripture straight up, as, as best as you can at the time of life you're in. And when you're done, you look up. And whoever is still standing there. Those are your guys. Major on them. And just keep doing that until Jesus takes you home. Gentlemen, we, none of us knows the future. 
Maybe it's the end times. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But the point is, you're out of control whether it's the end times or not. Right? The only smart thing to do is to major in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, it's the ultimate insider trader information. Right? You got cut in on the deal of the century. Make the most of it. If you don't like the deal you got cut in on this side of the grave, you get to pick on the other. Invest accordingly. Well, gentlemen, there will be plenty of time for more happy talk uh, tomorrow. So. <laughs>